Um, I'm grateful for the privilege of sharing with you this morning. Um, I didn't expect to do that this Sunday, given what Jesse did last Sunday. I thought, well, I'm going to get this Sunday off, and Gideon part two is going to come later. Surprise, surprise. Monday morning, I get the phone or a text message from Jesse saying, uh, I'm in the hospital. Uh, get ready to give the message on Sunday. I'm going, <laughs> okay, Lord, great. You got it. Right. We can do this. Thank you, Jesus. And so um, we're going to look at Gideon part two. Um, Gideon, I, I, I titled the first part, Confronting Your Fear. And I want to just do a quick review. I, I'm going to give this one another title. I don't have a title slide for it. Don't worry about it. Gideon, man of fear or man of faith. And I like to look at a, a contrast, if you will, and move through some highlights, which were given in scripture of Gideon's life that helps do that. You recall from our last time we talked about various fears. We, I listed three fears that uh, were there of Fear of man, fear of the enemy, and fear of God. We pretty much covered heavily the first two. I didn't really hit on the fear of God or the reverence of God. Um, that's for God's people, and as he moves them through their situation, moves them away from the first two into that conveyance of who he is and the focus on what he can do. And so we mentioned two, the, um, those two, and basically I want to go on to the third. We left Gideon still in the wine press. There's a wine press. There's the wine press. Yeah, we left him threshing wheat in the wine press, uh, attempting in his own manner to accomplish what he needed to survive. Okay, God wasn't doing it. So I'm going to go out and thresh my wheat in the wine press. And this is an example of that. We discussed Gideon's fear of failure, his inadequacy, his plan B for living and surviving in a difficult time. I want to ad remind us that God addressed Gideon much differently than Gideon thought of himself. In Judges 6.12, we see the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon. He said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And uh, that, that was not probably how Gideon was used to being addressed. So mighty warrior was not the typical for him. Gideon saw God, or I'm sorry, God saw Gideon in a way that Gideon himself could not because of his upbringing, his circumstances, his background, all kinds of things that shaped who Gideon was and what he thought of himself. The greeting challenged Gideon to the core. He likely was not used to be calling, being called mighty warrior. Threshing grain in a wine press just demonstrated his weakness and his attempts to address the situations. But God, the Lord, gave him a clear call. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hand. Am I not sending you? So that's on the screen, microprint. Pardon me, Lord, Gideon replied, but how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my family. The Lord answered, I will be with you. I love that phrase. And you will strike down the Midianites, leaving none alive. Instant promise. You, two things. I will be with you. You will accomplish what I'm calling. God states directly that he is sending Gideon to save Israel from the flux of Midianite raids. Go in the strength you have. Today, we'll see the work, this work out in two or more instances of God moving in Gideon's life. 
Rarely have I seen in my own life, and uh, perhaps you've seen in yours, does God call someone to tasks beyond their capacity, well beyond their capacity, without training and preparation. We look through history and scripture, we see that the people of God, let's just pick one out, Moses, first of all, was in Pharaoh's court. He was being trained as a son of Pharaoh. So he's getting the top-notch education, okay? Private schools the whole way, Pharaoh's son. He gets a, a little bit uh, in trouble when he realizes that he's not liking the injustice he sees. Quote, kill somebody, burrs in the sand. Pharaoh finds out, he leaves the country. Phase two of Moses' training. Go, not taking matters in your hands to be saving Israel out of the hand of Egypt, but go be a shepherd. That's the second 40 years of Moses' life. And then God appears in training phase three in a burning bush and says you're standing on holy ground and calls him to go back, potentially face certain death. Uh, of course, Pharaoh wouldn't have uh, been very happy with uh, the murderer coming back, but things have changed a little bit. And Moses goes back to Egypt with the staff in his hand and the call of God on his heart and the understanding of what it means to be a shepherd as well, because he's going to shepherd two million people for the next 40 years of his life. And they're not good sheep, they're tough sheep, okay? So we see that kind of action on the behalf of God. And so given that he took one of the best, Moses, one he called the friend of God, who walked and talked face to face with God, Seeing they did it with him shouldn't surprise us that he's going to do something similar to us or with us, okay? It might take a while for us to see the training through and a call realized, okay? So first he works in us, and I started with Kideon's character last week or two weeks ago. Then he works through us. Sometimes this occurs in rapid succession. So you can see a couple of things once in a while that just go chunk, 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 and the stair steps are right in front of you, and you go one, two, three, four, five, whatever. But then there's this plateau or this slow incline that we tend to walk through. We call that life. And it just kind of happens, and it happens day to day, and nothing happens out of the ordinary, and we're just kind of meandering along. And it seems like nothing unusual is taking place or God's maybe not at work, but he is, okay? We can be assured of that. We start in the strength that we have and God extends us from there. He takes us onto the stair step of exercise as he sculpts us into his image. I'm reminded of a, a, I'll call it an illustration that was given a number of years ago, and I may have used this in the past, I don't know, um, where the silversmith takes some pretty ugly rocks called silver ore, throws them into a stone crucible, puts it over a lot of fire, and lets it sit there and keeps adding fire to that until those rocks begin to turn into liquid. They begin to melt. And after a while, they are, are fairly liquidy, but he's all the time while they're turning to liquid, taking in a scoop and scraping the surface of the silver, if you will, or silver, melted silver ore to remove 
the dross from that to clean off the surface because the impurities are rising to the surface. So I love the illustration here because it's sort of like when God turns on the heat of our lives, the impurities start to come out. That's when we act anxiously or fearfully or angrily or any one of a number of fleshly ways. And he basically says, oh, a little bit more heat because he's scraping off, quote, the impurities. And he was doing this with Gideon in Gideon's life, I'm sure, because we give, he gives us a couple of really incredible instances of how he worked then in order to deliver the Israelites from Midian. But in our lives, he'll work and work and work like that, keep turning up the heat, if you will, to a point where it's just not going to mess and ruin the metal, but it will create a clean, silvery surface on the top, an absolutely beautifully reflective surface on the top. That's when the silver is 99.94 or whatever, 99.4% pure, and then he looks in and can see his reflection in the silver. When he can see his reflection in us, he can turn off the heat. He can take us off, quote, the crucible, turn us over and pour us into a ring mold or a chalice mold or an ingot mold or something else that he's planned for us. And then, of course, he'll take that final mold and shape it and polish it and bring it to a fine piece as the masters, the silversmiths do. I love that illustration because it's like the heat has to go up, the dross has to come off before he can see his reflection, before he can really shine, if you will, through me and you. So Gideon basically is called, first of all, to cleanse the town. So the next thing we see in Scripture in Judges chapter 26, verses 24 through 31, I'm going to read portions of it here. Verse 24, if you want to follow along, Judges chapter 6. So Gideon built an altar to the Lord there and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it stands an Oprah of the Abizrites. That same night the Lord said to him, Take the second bull from your father's herd, the one seven years old. Tear down your father's altar to Baal and cut down the Asherah pool beside it. Then build a proper kind of altar to the Lord your God on the top of this height, using the wood of the Asherah pole that you cut down. Offer the second bull as a burnt offering. So Gideon took ten of his servants and did as the Lord told him. And period at the end of that sentence, and then the next sentence, which is rather interesting. But because he was afraid of his family and the townspeople, he did it at night rather than the daytime. Wait a minute, I thought God was working in Gideon so he wouldn't be afraid anymore, right? You know, he got this call, he got this time, and, and then the next time we hear from God responding to Gideon, he's saying, all right, Gideon, here's the next assignment. We're going to have you work in your own family first. Hmm, sounds familiar? Right next to those who see me, know me, see my weakness, see the worst parts of me, God's going to say, that's where I want to start. He does it with Gideon. He does it with me. He does it with you. I'm sure he's done it with many others. 
Because that's where others will begin to see the change in us. That's where the, the transformation becomes visual to those around us. And so basically, Gideon does what he's told that same night. He took 10 of his servants, ones who were servants of the Lord, and went out and cut down the pole, rebuilt the altar, and sacrificed daddy's cow, daddy's bull on it. And I'm thinking, oh man, this could be really bad because that was daddy's second bull or cow or ox. And, and you know, he might need two to plow with. And so Gideon realized some things probably about this. And he was like, I'm going to do this at night so nobody realizes I'm doing this. But let me read on. Verse 28, in the morning when the people of the town got up, there was Baal's altar, demolished with the Asher pole beside it, cut down, and a second bowl sacrificed on the newly built altar. They asked each other, who did this? When they carefully investigated, they were told, Gideon, son of Joash, did it. The people of the town demanded of Joash, bring out your son, he must die because he has broken down Baal's altar and cut down the Asher pole beside it. And I thought, uh-oh. Here it is. Gideon knew this was going to happen. That's why he did it at night. See if he could hide, you know, not get caught. Red-handed. This is what really intrigues me. Verse 31. But Joash replied. Now remember, this was Joash's bowl, Joash's altar, and Joash's Asherah pole. So it wasn't somebody else. It was in the family, so to speak, all the way. And here's daddy coming out before the people with his son somewhere being demanded for his death. Joash replied to the hostile, hostile crowd around him, are you going to plead Baal's cause? I love this. Are you going to, are you going to try to defend Baal? Are you trying to save him? Whoever fights for him will be put to death by morning, exclamation point. Whoa. That's bold. In other words, you're going to come after my son? Face the sword. You're going to have to go through me. But before he even does that, he basically says, can't Baal save himself? Can't Baal defend himself? He doesn't really need you or me to do that, does he? If he's God. And that was the point. Joash appealed to the reality that Baal really had no power. He had no ability to do anything. He needed people to give him the power, so to speak. So because Gideon broke down Baal's altar, they gave them the name Jerobaal. That day saying, let Baal contend with him. So Jael, I'm sorry, Gideon gets a nickname, Jerobaal, that apparently follows him the rest of his life. He's a contender with Baal. And that is basically God is after. He's trying to cleanse the land. So bring me down to the next slide. Cleanse the land. <clears throat> Before we get to the point where you're looking at a map and you're looking at the Jezreel Valley, you see that kind of turquoise blue in the middle. You see the Jordan on the right, the Sea of Galilee at the top. So you can kind of get a reference point that Jezreel Valley goes from the Jordan over to the Mediterranean Sea. Okay. This is where the Midianites were going to come, okay? And that's right through, right through where Gideon lives, interestingly enough. 
He's part of the tribes of Bebizra and Manasseh that had that land given to them when God had the land parsed out for Israel. And so the, the next thing we hear is all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Yep, we're going to go camping and we're going to take and put it right in the middle of your wheat fields, your oat fields, your barley fields, your sheep pastures, your grape vineyards, your olive groves. We're just going to come in and listen to what it says. And then the Spirit of the Lord came on Gideon, and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Israelites to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms, also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up with him. So he didn't just go to his cousins. He went to the four additional tribes surrounding the area and say, help. Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand as you promised, look, I will place a wool fleece on the threshing floor. Notice we're out of the wine press. We're in the threshing floor at this point in time. Okay. If there is dew only on the fleece and the ground is dry, then I will know you will save Israel by hand, as you said. And that is what happened. Now, we've heard the story probably in Bible school. For those of you who haven't heard it, it's the dry fleece, wet ground, and then the wet ground, dry fleece trick. Okay? So basically Gideon's saying, if you're going to save um, by my hand at this time, I need to know, is the fleece going to be dry and the ground wet? And just to be sure, Lord, I don't want to make a mistake on this one. This could be deadly. The next night, the fleece wet and the ground dry. The opposite. And it was so. And God did it. I mean, you, I know of places where we've been showing things like the Jesus film, and people have stood around the projectors and the equipment and prayed that God would keep the storm away so the, it, the showing would not go or would not be interrupted. And the clouds literally did this and went around. And it rained around the showing. I know of other showings where I stood in the middle of the, the rain with an umbrella over the projector, personally, this was in uh, Papua New Guinea, and two other associates bringing a tarp to hold up so the show could go on. And the people sat in the rain and watched. I'm like, wow, God, how do you want to do it? I don't care. You want it to be dry or you want it to be wet? Either way, the gospel is going forth, and you're getting the glory because they're listening, they're hearing. They're responding. And Gideon was basically seeking the Lord to say, okay, what's going on here, Lord? What do you want to do? So then he basically tested with the fleece two times. Fleece dry, ground wet was the next morning. It was so. The next thing was on to military victory. So Judges 7, 1 to 25, pretty much gives us the full picture. Um. <clears throat> lost a page apparently yep I moved page four underneath page three we'll move through this fairly quickly because Vidian basically says to these tribes come in 32,000 men respond 
So he gets an army of 32,000 soldiers. And basically the Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian with your, into their hands or Israel would boast against me that my own strength has saved me. Remember what he started off with, go in the strength you have. But now he's saying, I can't do it with that many people because then Israel will be able to say, we did it. So God's going to say, wait a minute, hold it. I'm going to do it in such a way that you, with what you have in your hands, so to speak, I'm going to save Midian. And he shows that. But then, on the other hand, he's saying, no, not with 32,000. And then he basically takes him to another place, and he pairs it down a little bit more. Anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Whew. Talk about leaving their posts. 22,000 out of 32,000, leaving 10. And basically, um, Gideon asks again, or the Lord says, there's still too many. And then he, basically God says, have the men who lap water like a dog stay, I believe it is. And then those that bend over basically leave 9,700 down to 300, from 32,000 to 300. Boom. The thing that God did next is really sweet because that night in the Midian camp, a soldier was basically relaying a story and Gideon just wanted to go down and kind of investigate the camp with one of his associates. So they go down and they're standing next to one of the tents or sitting next to one of the tents, I don't know for sure. And they overhear this guy relating the fact that he has had a dream and there's this barley loaf on the hill that comes down into the camp and it runs and flattens the whole camp. And here's the response that the interpretation comes in. If you're afraid to attack, go down with your syrup pure and listen to what they're saying after you be encouraged. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites the whole camp into his hands. So whether or not Midian went down in fear or, or really in military strategic position to say, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do this with 300 men or I just need a little bit of encouragement, Lord. God put it front and center. Here it is. None other than Gideon, son of Joash. God will come alongside us and encourage us. So God's faithfulness alone was what drove the Midianites out that night. Gideon perched his men on the mountain, apparently. 300 pictures, 300 torches spread out into companies to 300. They all broke the picture simultaneously, revealing the torches, blew the trumpet, 300 trumpets. That would have sounded like a lot of trumpets, okay? And, of course, that threw the camp into confusion. They started killing one another, getting all kinds of nasty things in that confusion, and Gideon's men come down, and they chase the men off. Literally, the army fled to Beth Shattah towards Zerah as far as the border of Abel Amalah near Tabath. I, don't, I didn't go through and figure out where all those places were in the scripture, but it wasn't a just a little boom, Midian fled, and Gideon had to chase them. 
and destroy and all the way. I want to talk in summary about um, the opposite of fear in a way. Because we've been talking about faith and Jesse Austin mentions that when he comes to preach, there's always something that brings, God brings to his heart and his life during that week. This week was no different. I'm coming to give the message about faith. And Chad asked me on Friday if, what my summary statement would be. And I said, well, let's walk by faith. That's the day that he told me he wasn't going to be able to lead worship. That's the day we had to make a decision whether or not we would continue the service that we sent the email out just the day before, the night before. That's the day that I found out that other things were going wrong. And I'm like, oh, Lord, what are you doing here? And literally, I thought, well, God must want to do something because it's all going bad. Either that or he's trying to warn me that I need to settle down and let him do his work. Either way. But I just stopped and said, okay, God, what is it? And I had to stop to the point of saying, okay, do, how do you want me to believe you, God? Because the object of our faith, not our faith, is really the issue. It doesn't matter how much faith we have. God takes whatever we have. Remember? Go in the strength you have, the faith you have. And I, I still love that passage in Scripture where Jesus iterates to the one man saying, I believe, help me in my unbelief, Lord, because my weakness is, is holding me back. And even this morning, as I'm thinking about the fact that Chad just texted me and said, God didn't heal me, I'm still sick. Pray for me. I'm praying for you. It's like, thanks, bud, appreciate it. I mean, God even had me put together a presentation with all the music that he set up and with a plan B in mind. Those two pieces that you're going to hear from that family came up on Saturday. And I'm like, okay, Lord, how do you want to do this? Without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and rewards those who earnestly seek him. Hebrews eleven six. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, elders obtained a good report. That's Joshua and Caleb. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. That's Hebrews 11, 1 to 3. As powerful as God is, God moves in response to our faith. The first question is, do you believe what God said is true? Do you believe the promise? This requires serious consideration of what's in your heart because you really don't, if you don't really believe him, then everything kind of stops right there. Consider the words of Jesus. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. That's in Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. So there's places where Jesus could do work despite the faith or lack of faith, and there were other places, this one in particular, where he couldn't because there was no faith. And then there were people like the centurion. When Jesus heard at this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith in Israel. This is Luke 7, 9. The centurion's servant, of course, was ill. And the centurion came to Jesus saying, 
I know you can heal my servant. Just say the word and he'll be healed. And Jesus' response was, I'm not seeing this kind of faith in Israel. Wow. Why? Because the centurion understood structure of authority. And he understood who he was talking to. He was talking to the God of the universe, the one who healed people. Well, then you just need to say it, and that'll be done. That was what he was used to. Caesar said it, centurion did it. That's all there is. There's no discussion, no question, no issue. It happened. I could be taking the hill and dying on the hill, but the hill's going to be taken. That's the issue that we're given here. Do we believe God when he calls us to do something? There is a warning that I want to give you. We need to check our motives. Consider what James says. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do they not come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend it on your own pleasures. James 4, 1 through 3. There's something amazing about a God who does impossible things. He does them for the right reasons. So we can come before God with an anticipation he's called us to do something like Gideon did, but we better have our heart right. In other words, it's not for me that I'm doing this, Lord. It's because you called me to do this, that's all. And you better get the glory. Our motives matter when we're asking God for his help. Searching your motives is to make sure you rule out selfish or ungodly thinking like these believers whom Jesus was writing to. Some of them weren't asking or seeking God. Some were sought seeking their own self-interest. Remember this, God loves to send help, but he will not feed our improper motives. He cares about us enough not to act according to our selfish desires. He's intent on changing and transforming our hearts. I've been watching my grandchildren. Their willingness to take from one another. You know, one kid picks something up. Immediately, the other kid drops what they were playing with and goes over to that thing and wants it. I'm going, what's wrong with that? You're fine over here. No. Our selfish desires, our motives are, I want that, and it's mine. Did you ever hear that from your grandchildren? Or your children? Or yourself? <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we have asked from him. We have that's 1 John 5, 14 and 15. I love to quote that verse. But I'm reminded also where Jesus taught his disciples, this is how you to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Have you ever count the times where Jesus said, I didn't come to do my own will, but I came to do that of my Father. I only do what he says for me to do. That means I have to know my Father's will. I have to listen to my Father. I have to constantly be seeking Him and listening to Him, even as He speaks in a whisper. 
Finally, if, are you willing to trust God? If you're really honest with ourselves, it's easy to trust God in the beginning and easy to say, I trust you, God. You can do this. You can heal my brother, Chad. Okay? You can heal all of our friends who are sick with COVID. It's easy to trust him by saying. The question is then, is it easy to, or is it tough when it's not going the way we prayed? The challenge is trusting God in the middle while we're waiting. When you know that nothing is impossible with God, but you're unsure why God is not moving, sometimes the only answer left is to say, God, I trust you. You have to trust what he's doing in your life and wait. Faith is believing that God can and he will. Trust is expressing faith, understanding that he will, but he will but that he will do what's best when it's best. We talk a lot about faith and trust in prayer, persistently approaching the throne of God for work on someone's life, sometimes for a period of one, five, 10, 20, or even a lifetime of years, asking God to move in a heart. I know someone who we've been praying for 20 years or more. Something very dear to my sister, my wife. Isaiah 59, 55, 8, and 9 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God operates on a level higher than what we know and what we can see. Our vision is limited when it comes to knowing the best. His vision, however, is not limited. He sees the whole picture from beginning to end, from creation to finish. He's the Alpha, the Omega. We can barely see the next step on our path. Since we don't always know what God is doing because his thoughts are different, we must simply be willing to trust him. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir in a lot of cases here. But if you're still living, walking on the face of the earth, you and I are bound for some hurt. Okay, that's all there is to it. We can expect suffering. Nate, in our, in our prayer uh, time on Wednesday night, quoted C.S. Lewis. It was a wonderful quote. C.S. Lewis basically lived and made this quote back in 1948 when the atomic bomb was being first released and uh, made apparent. And he was talking about the atomic age, and he was talking about the reality that we've always faced suffering, we've always faced difficulty, that we've always faced death. We can't get out of it. The only difference between then and now is we have something called an anesthetic. We literally do. We have a painkiller. And we use the painkiller in a lot of ways to get out of that. But he even goes to the point in the end of his quote of saying something about a microbe that could take us from inside in 1948. All of this is nothing new, nothing novel. So we should not go whimpering about saying, oh, it's not going to be good. We're going to die. Correct. We're going to die. Now, some of you are smiling and others are not. I understand. That sounds a little bit morbid. I'm going to die and I'm going to go be with Jesus. I'm going to be with Jesus. This won't ache anymore. These won't fall out anymore. My COVID brain's going to go away. 
I do have COVID brain, okay? There are holes. I, can't, I could not remember one of my granddaughter's names the other night when I was introducing my grandchildren to somebody. I stood there for five minutes introducing the whole bunch, came back to Eloise. I could not remember her name. I'm thinking, wow. Now, I've had problems with names in the past, okay? So I recognize this. If I walk up to you and say, hi, my name's Tom. I know I should know your name, but I can't remember it right now. Happened yesterday, happened Friday. I'm just gotten to the point where I'm going, God, you know my brain, you know what is gone. I don't care about my reputation or my appearance. I just want these people to know I care. I want people to understand that Jesus loves them through my weakness and my failure. I want to play one more song because the difficulties of um, this week didn't present what I call a stillness to my soul. My, I started off by, quote, mentioning steadfastness. And um, I want to give you an opportunity to come if you want to be before the Lord here on the altar and present something to him that you're having a struggle with. Come on down. If you want prayer, I'm here. Other elders are here. Chris is here. We'll pray with you. I want to invite you to invite the Lord to still your soul. When I was talking this week about the music and um, the plan B music, my wife said to me, you know, the song, Bestill My Soul, really, is beautiful. I really love that song. And I went, okay. I wonder if there's one thing online. Well, guess what? The family I showed you sings that. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And when you continue in our closing, if you want to come, please feel free to. Um, and as we sing, I want to invite you to make it a prayer that the God of the universe who does amazing things, does the impossible, who moves the Midianites out of Israel, who chases COVID from many of us, who keeps the rest of us from getting it, who watches over our nation, and the things that are going on will do something even greater. He'll walk through this week with us, enabling us to be bearers of light. But invite him to still your soul that as you go out with that radiance, you have that stillness, that calmness, that assurance that the God who created will sustain. Let's sing.